All right. Well, welcome, Faith Acker, um, to my little podcast here. Um, we're talking today about the subtle knife. Um, so if you could just kind of introduce who you are and what your work with the subtle knife has been like. Oh, and here's Zoe too joining us. Um, yeah, go for it. Hi, I'm Faith Acker, and I, among other things, am a teacher at community colleges in the greater Washington, D.C. area, and I also precept and lecture online for Signum University, uh, which is run out of Maine, I think. No, sorry, New Hampshire. Yeah. Uh, but it has an international student body uh, as far, I think, all the way into the uh, what, Eastern hemispheres and Europe and Australia. I guess that is the Eastern hemispheres. I think we have a Jap had a Japanese student in my epic class last semester, and then quite a lot from North America as well. So um, I've been reading Pullman since college when I came across him in a course on science fiction and fantasy, actually. I won't tell you how long ago that was, but I will tell you that I have the Amber Spyglass in hardcover because that was the only yeah. copy I could buy at the time. Um, and most recently, I think Wesley's invited me to his podcast because I taught the subtle knife in my Signum course on the life and times of the English epic. Yeah, and that's how I yeah that's how I came across your. Um, your name and wanted to invite you on because there aren't that many people that I've found who have taught this book and particularly not at the, you know, master's level, graduate level. Um, and, and the title of that course is kind of interesting. So the life and times of the English epic makes it sound like the English epic has died or passed over. <laughs> uh, um, but, but what do you think about that? I mean, um, how is it doing? How's our, our epic uh, hanging in there? Well, that's actually funny that you say that because the course title I proposed to Signum, I think I'm allowed to say this, was the rise and fall of the English epic. Mm -hmm. And they said that since so many of the writers that Signum celebrates would be in the last half of the <laughs> course, uh, Tolkien and Lewis and other great fantasy and science fiction writers, they didn't know that it was entirely appropriate to inadvertently call the last half of the course the fall. Mm -hmm. So we compromised on the life and times. And we actually didn't, uh, if you read the course page, which is on the Signum webpage, mm -hmm. you'll see we didn't stick to the English epic entirely. The first third of the course was actually foundations for the English epic. So we read Dante's Inferno and we read uh, the Aeneid, and I think I recommended the Iliad and the Odyssey and Gilgamesh and all the other classics, but we started with the Iliad and Dante's Inferno and some French medieval epics, and then we worked our way into the Renaissance and um, late medieval and Renaissance epics in England, the Fairy Queen and Paradise Lost. And so by the time we got to modern novels, which in, or modern texts, which included Thomas Hardy um, and Philip Pullman and even uh, some uh, one of the James Bond novels, then they weren't formal epics in the way that you might think of the Iliad or the Odyssey being a formal epic. Certainly they've made some 
huge structural changes. You don't get the, the poetry or the formal poetry of the older epics, which I think is the biggest change. And often you lose some of the philosophy as well. But I think Pullman in particular was really fun because he tries to keep that philosophy and he is directly responding to Milton's Paradise Lost, an earlier epic. That I think those parallels are a lot clearer actually in the Amber Spyglass. So maybe you'll let me come back when you talk about the Amber Spyglass. Oh, definitely. Um, and actually there's some beautiful Dante parallels in the Amber Spyglass as well. Oh, that's some text that I don't know as well, the, the Inferno and the, especially the other two, the Purgatorio, the Paradiso, really. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I find them quite beautiful, but also quite difficult to, to uh, understand um, mm -hmm. in ways I think that maybe the epic is particularly suited to in our time is to, to be this kind of thing that, you know, is, is wonderful and powerful, but not entirely within our grasp um, because it sort of speaks to a culture of of, of, of which we have some faint memories, uh, but maybe is not mm -hmm. so, so um, immediate to us anymore. Um, but yeah, I, I would love to have you back on to talk about some of that um, and work, work through the Amber Spyglass a bit. Um, it's going to be a while, I think. <laughs> I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm, going, I'm really slowing down here at the subtle knife. I, I just, um, I've been trying to uh, get back on track here. So uh, having that to look forward to will will help pull me forward. Um, now, so for for teaching Pullman alongside the likes of Dante and Milton, and sort of putting him within that tradition, um, that's a really different way of approaching Pullman than I I would have assumed, uh, given Signum's interest in Tolkien and Lewis, that he would be set up as a kind of anti-Lewis, right? Like he likes to set himself up in a lot of ways. And he mm -hmm. says some really disparaging things about Tolkien too, but but he really doesn't like Lewis's um, uh, you know Narnia books. Essentially, um, he he finds a lot of faults with them, and um, takes him to task. Now, uh, how much does that enter that sort of framing? Um, how does that enter in, and how is it in tension with this other framing of him Pullman being in this kind of epic line of of poets and um, and and bards and things? Well, that's really two questions, I think. Um, so the, for the first half of it, we didn't talk in class that I remember about his anti-Lewis sentiments. I didn't think they were actually relevant to the discussion that we were having based on the epic. They, and even, even the whole uh, Dark, Dark, Dark Materials trilogy, in some ways, it's anti-Lewis. It's certainly not as anti-Lewis as um, Lev Grossman's The Magicians, which sets up an anti-Narnia and batters it down and shatters it to pieces uh, very deliberately. I think, if anything, I wouldn't say that Pullman feels anti-Lewis to me. I would say that he and Lewis are doing many of the same things, but starting from very different philosophical perspectives. And while he may, and another, another difference I would say is that for me, the Dark Materials trilogy is really set for a slightly older reader than the Chronicles of Narnia. 
I would read the Chronicles of Narnia to probably a six-year-old, at least the first few, maybe six or seven. I don't have children, so that's totally arbitrary. I'm not abusing my own children if there's something I'm forgetting. <laughs> um, but I would, I would read the, it to a pretty young child, and I'm fairly sure that I've taught in secondary schools where they've read it in at least third grade um, very appropriately. I don't know that I would necessarily, I would certainly wouldn't give the Amber Spyglass to a child that young, but I probably wouldn't give the last battle either. There's just a lot more to chew on in that respect. But I don't see His Dark Materials as being an anti-Lewis. I see it as being more of a modernized, almost an anti-Milton, yeah. actually. Um, it's it may have some Lewis influences in it. And I think that last week when we were doing the Signum Symposium, Gabriel Schenk mentioned a few of those. Um, but I, I don't see it as being as overt as some of his other statements about Lewis and about Christianity are. Yeah, that's really refreshing. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. And, um, and I think that the framing of the book only really enters into the discussion when you're talking about teaching the book um, in some mm -hmm. ways, because, you know, readers can come to it with all sorts of expectations and uh, beliefs and uh, things they've heard about the book or whatever, right? Um, but as long as you sort of like uh, are reading the book because you want to read it, um, then I think you're going to be okay with this. I think that there might be a danger of reading this book, you know, with an ulterior motive um, like there is with any book, right? Because you're sort of going at it with a, a particular slant of, um, you know, apologetics on the one hand, or, you know, you really want to criticize this one element of the book on the other hand. And I think Pullman really falls into that trap with Lewis. He's not a particularly charitable reader of Lewis's Narnia books. Um, and I think it's partly because he read them when he was grown up, you know, he, mm -hmm. wasn't, he wasn't a young kid reading them. Um, he didn't have that early um, exposure to, to the imaginative kind of power of the books. Instead, he came at them, I think, you know, with a, with a, a certain uh, ulterior motive, right? Um, it, so, yeah, so I, I'm really glad that uh, to, to think of him not as the anti-Lewis, but yeah, as a kind of um, uh, follower of Milton and particularly of, of Blake's Milton, mm -hmm. right? Uh, which is is not the Milton that, say, C.S. Lewis finds mm -hmm. when he reads Paradise Lost. Uh, so yeah, so could you could you elaborate a bit on in what sense Pullman is uh, is an anti-Milton? Uh, if, if you're willing to indulge us. So I'm going to assume your your podcast listeners have largely read his dark materials. Is that safe? Yeah, please feel free to give any spoilers or, or whatever for the, uh, for the first few books at least. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm really assuming if you're a podcast listener here that you've read the Amber Spyglass and if you haven't, you should probably skip ahead about two minutes because <laughs> <laughs> um, I will ruin the plot for you. But I think more or less, I view His Dark Materials as an epic coming of age novel series. And when you get to the end of The Amber Spyglass, uh, Lyra has her first amorous encounter, and it's very sensually described, which is probably why I wouldn't have a 
six or eight year old read the book. Um, <laughs> maybe they would. Yes, you're you're making the hand gesture like like they would totally miss it. Maybe they would. Um, but it it would it would concern me that it and also it's because it takes place in another universe. There, the amorous touching also involves the demons mm. um, as well. So while I find that really fascinating, but the whole principle of Paradise Lost is that it sets up the fall of Adam and Eve, and it does it in a very sensual way. There's actually quite, and it, there are two sex scenes in Paradise Lost, which many people conveniently gloss over. And the first one is kind of gentle and touching and all the things that uh, Milton imagined pre-lapsarian sex to be. Um, and the second one, if you read the language, is much more racy uh, is probably the best word I would use to describe it. And Milton sets up that raciness in the context of the fall. Suddenly sex becomes this tainted thing, something that God intended to be this pure, beautiful thing for a couple together. He says, once they've had the fall, it can't be pure and lovely in all the ways ahead of time um, that it was. And he also has a lot of other writings on marriage and divorce uh, that parallel some of those ideas. In Pullman, getting Lyra to the point of her amorous encounter is actually the goal of the book. In fact, it is through having this intimate encounter with Will that she has her spirit, spiritual awakening, more or less. And so Pullman, I think, reclaims that physical affection into a coming-of-age novel, which I think is something, it's been a decade, but I think it's something he does in some of the Sally Lockhart's as well, uh, is links the amorous entanglement with, or the sorry, the coming of age with an amorous entanglement as well. Um, so I think in that way, he sets up the fall as the good and beautiful and desirable thing, whereas the whole point of Milton's is you get to the fall, you see how devastating life is for um, Adam and Eve, and then you need the grace, the restitution of Jesus in the last two books of Paradise Lost to come and restore them. But because Pullman sets up the church as restrictive and negative in the whole Dark, uh, dark, dark Materials trilogy, you have the completely opposite effect. The church is trying to prevent the fall, but it's a bad thing, and it's not until Lyra can get to the fall and after the fall experience this beautiful, intimate relationship is actually the kind of the reclaiming of the fall. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that is a lot of what Pullman is taking from his other reading, right, with, with Blake mm -hmm. songs and with um, all that other little short story kind of dialogue thing, the uh, Marionette Theater. Have you looked at that text at all? I have not read the Marionette Theater. It's, it's, a, it's a, a very strange little piece um, that, that does a kind of reinterpretation of the fall as well that, that seems to have had a big impact on Pullman. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's really interesting. But yeah, his, his emphasis on the relationship between Will and Lyra being a good thing, including their physical attraction. Um, that's something that he brings in at the very end of the story, but um, you, you can see it sort of building up throughout the, the whole the whole book. Mm -hmm. right? So Will, Will gets introduced in the second book here, um, really becomes kind of the protagonist of the second book mm -hmm. in a way that 
was really surprising uh, for me when I was first reading these um, because the first book ends on this cliffhanger, like literally, you know, she's walking off this cliff into this new world. And, uh, and the second book you pick up in our world, in, in the mm-hmm. real world, right? Um, yeah. Which, which then, you know, leads into this kind of world in between the two where they meet. Um, so that, that element of um, the relationship, the, um, the love being a part of that, um, but also the, the necessary, you know, separation at the very end. And this is like the really sad part of the book, right? At the very, very end, they, they have to go back into their separate worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious about how that um, sort of, that scope, uh, that sort of sweeping element of their story um, contributes to some of the kind of epic quality uh, in these books because there is this kind of war in heaven going on in the background, but, um, but that's not really where the focus is in, in the series. It's really on the characters and their, their relationship. And, and that's something we see in Milton as well, yeah. where you have Satan and the war in heaven and the fallen angels, and then uh, Christ coming in as the savior. And then you have Adam and Eve. I think where it differs is, as you say, with the presentation of Will as the hero, um, and then the presentation of, of Will and Lyra by the end of the third book become joint heroes in their agreement to separate. But I would contend that almost every good epic requires a sacrifice. Um, in Milton, in the Bible, that sacrifice tends to be Christ's sacrifice uh, on the cross. Um, in the Iliad, you can argue that it's a lot of different people, uh, possibly Patroclus, mm-hmm. uh, possibly um, Achilles, uh, possibly even some of the, possibly even somebody like Hector. Um, but the the presence of a sacrifice is part of what makes a great hero a great hero. Uh, if you don't have the sacrifice in the first place, you have a really boring one-dimensional character. Um, you know, he just does, you know, he's largely Herculean, uh, but not not really, because Hercules has his, has his moments of weakness and sacrifice as well. But there's something that we don't like about our heroes being flawless. And I think the Judeo, well, the Christian Jesus is probably the only one I can think of who is intentionally flawless. Um, Achilles is close. Um, he gets set up as divine. Um, and so what makes it work for Achilles and Jesus in particular is that they too have to make huge sacrifices. Achilles has to leave his wife behind when Troy is burning, and then he has to leave his girlfriend lover behind when everything seems fine. Mm -hmm. Jesus has to die um, in order for the epics to reach a satisfying conclusion. So that's a way that you can get around the flawless hero and still make it an interesting narrative construction, and it's a very epic thing to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of, I feel like... um, obstacles that get thrown in in at the end here um right the, the going to the world of the dead which is mm-hmm. another kind of epic motif right yeah the, the underworld thing um and so the separation from the demon that takes place there um i i see that as probably the big you know sacrifice moment prior to mm-hmm. the really um abrupt one at the, the very end right when they they realize yeah. they can't be together and then they 
they are again sort of separate um and so that there's there's this promise at the end of the book that though they can't be physically together they can sort of emotionally and in some kind of spiritual way almost um you know connect uh by by traveling in this kind of imaginative sense between the worlds right they won't physically be able to go anymore um back and forth but in the same way that um the uh the shaman character will's father has been sort of traveling and learning things in mm -hmm. the spirit as he says um i think it's one of the witches who tells them you can also learn to do this um and so you will um see each other again maybe you know in, in some mm -hmm. form some of you know and so there's there's an interesting kind of tension there i guess between you know this emphasis on the physical enjoyment um as that sort of being yeah redeemed and held up as good on the other hand it's not possible for them um except for this brief time mm -hmm. beyond that they have to kind of learn this other way of of remaining connected um they there's there's a similar way in which they um you know the things that have made them special up to that point their their use of the alethiometer for lyra or the mm -hmm. knife for will those things also sort of get taken away from them um at the end of the story mm -hmm. and again lyra has the promise that she can learn to read it but through you know diligent study and this there's a strong suggestion that will is going to learn to be a um a surgeon or something like that that he'll you know use the same kind of skills and techniques and things but just in a different way in a in a more mm -hmm. like real way um but we have, yeah so anyway that there, there's there's a problem there i feel like because <laughs> there is this um the suggestion that they you know should still have their own lives to live mm -hmm. um, as much as they want to kind of hold on to this really important transitional moment into their kind of young adulthood mm -hmm. yeah. um, so i don't know if that if that qualifies as a sacrifice or if it's sort of something else <laughs> i don't know quite what's going on there i i would agree with you that the the giving up of pantalaimon um, to go into the land of the dead is a larger and more traumatic sacrifice in some ways um, narratively it's not framed as the big moment i guess um, and i and i see your point about the there, the promise of other futures. And it will be interesting to see what Pullman does with that yeah. uh, in, if he, because I think he's coming back to Lyra in the secret Commonwealth. I think that's correct. I haven't read it yet. Um, so uh, you're right. In that way, it maybe doesn't meet the, the traditional epic, but actually a lot of epics do promise something else to come. If we, if we go back to the Iliad, the Odyssey comes next. If we go back to the Inferno, the Purgatorio and the Paradiso come next. If you go back to Paradise Lost, it actually gets followed by Paradise Regained. Uh, so this idea of leaving something with a bit of a promise, and it, and it is kind of like the end of Paradise Lost. I keep going back to that. Um, but the first 10 books of Paradise Lost are the original Paradise Lost, and it ends on really kind of a low note. 
And then books 11 and 12 are basically the story of the gospel. Adam gets to go up to the top of a mountain with an angel, and an angel says, look, your life may be miserable, and the human race may be doomed, but don't worry, a savior is coming. Um, and then there's this very compressed uh, two books at the very end where he, he says, look, this, this better future awaits. And Adam goes down like, oh, hurrah, better future awaits. Uh, never mind that my family has to live through the entire Old Testament uh, before that better future. I mean, he doesn't know at that point. There's no real sense of scale uh, for Adam. And I suppose there's no sense of scale really for Will and Lyra either. Uh, those things could pick up and be beautiful immediately, or it might take um, a lot more time and some angst and agony. Yeah. So. Yeah. I like that as a, a, a way that the book um, leaves you with this kind of vision, but puts you back into, you know, the non-epic world to mm -hmm. sort of work out in what way you're going to use and, and hold on to and, and cultivate that vision. Um, that seems like a really powerful, um, I don't know if it's a pedagogical sort of sense in which epics you know can affect us or if it's something uh, a bit deeper than that um if it really kind of grips you then um you, you sort i mean i think the the biblical story is you know this kind of great epic mm -hmm. story you can you can read it that way um, and that seems to be part of what milton's doing there is to try to kind of put our focus on on the epic quality of a mm -hmm. um, of a conventional religious you know, uh, uh, yes, certainly in Milton's case, it's very didactic. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't get the same didactic feel from Pullman, but then that's not really the point of his book. <laughs> yeah. No, so he's, he's very em emphatic that he's a storyteller and he's telling the best story he can. Um, he clearly has metaphysical, philosophical, you know, uh, interests that he, brings in and that sort of buoy his story and give it a lot of vitality. Um, the demon, right, is like this great insight of his that really comes to life when he realizes that there's a difference between the demons of children and adults and that mm -hmm. drives, you know, he still hasn't finished working that out. And I have read the new book. It's, it's wonderful. I, I just uh, devoured it as soon as I got my hands on the copy. Um, but he still hasn't finished working out, you know, what are the implications of of these changes that take place in a in a person's life with you know with their demon um, developing uh, along with them? Maybe they kind of diverge in a, in some mm -hmm. way. Um, it's 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 quite an interesting story. Um, but but back to the subtle knife. Um, there's I wanted to bring this up too. There's also the specters. This yes. is a kind of um, a great. I don't know if it's as original as the demon because you see, you know, like the Dementors in Harry mm -hmm. Potter is like a very similar kind of thing. Even the ring wraith, you know, the image at least is very similar um, as they're portrayed in the, the Peter Jackson films that, that is. But, but there's these specters that have also come into being as a result of human curiosity. And mm -hmm. um, so there's a kind of, there's a kind of, um, uh, traditional reading of the fall there in what happens in Shidagatsi where they they pursue knowledge that is forbidden and it really bites them. Uh, it's mm -hmm. bad <laughs> that they 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 let the de uh, the specters into their world. Um, what, what do you make of of their 
uh, role in, in, in giving a kind of epic uh, tinge to things there? Well, actually for me, so if you view the whole trilogy together, it works quite well as an epic, but each of the books has its own smaller narrative structure. And one of the most common elements in the epic is the traditional descent into hell. And so for me, the specters in The Subtle Knife actually take the place of the descent into hell. You go into this, for Will, it's a completely new world. Um, you, are, you watch people be tormented and pursued by demons. It's actually very Dante-like in that respect yeah. uh, because he doesn't get pursued. He has a, 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 the guide and the safe passage of the knife. Um, and also because he's a child, they can't, um, they can't touch him yet. Um, and then the other, the adults of the world are, are get the ones who are suffering from this. And I, and I think it's kind of unfair because I think the adults who do get destroyed by the specters, by the time Will and Lyra get there, are not the adults who have had the, who have, who have failed others, failed the others by pursuing the knowledge and opening things with the knife. Uh, those those careless ones are either long gone or even worse, they have escaped into other worlds and avoided the consequences of their actions. Um, but but yeah, for me, they 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 fill the the gap left in the plot of the descent into hell. It's a it's a place where you go and you combat demons more or less. Um, in this case, they are to Will and Lyra invisible demons. There's this a beautiful scene in one of the early chapters where they watch somebody fighting them off, but they can't see them. So I think they just see his arms flailing, yeah. uh, but they're still there and you know, it's something awful and dreadful. And I think they also, I think there's a moment where they have kind of a sickening feeling. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. There, so there's, there's a scene where, where Lyra sees the young man who they've, they defeated to, to win the mm -hmm. knife back. He yep. had stolen it. They win it back. She sees him down there now without the knife. He's, he's prey to the specters and they get him. And she sees him trying, she sees him trying to count the stones in the wall. This is a weird little detail that Will picks up on when she tells him the story a few chapters mm -hmm. later. Um, and he thinks maybe the specters come from our world, after, like the real world after all, because he has seen his mother who's sort of, Mm -hmm. has these these mental mm -hmm. demons right she's seen him do similar things to try to you know sort of keep it all together um and there's a there's a pretty clear i think um line you can trace there where just like dante works out in the imagery of hell sort of psychological realities uh, of exile mm -hmm. and um you know political turmoil and, and whatnot and you know just sins of, of various kinds that that eat you up um, in a similar way, Pullman seems to be drawing on, you know, his own experience or things he's seen of, of depression, of um, mm -hmm. you know, mental illness, and kind of bringing that out through the, uh, through the specters mm -hmm. as this kind of force of, of you know, taking your, your soul, mm -hmm. your spirit, and, um, and leaving you this kind of emptiness, this, this, uh, this deep melancholy, um, which is, you know, I guess a, a lot like hell probably. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. That's a really interesting reading and not one that I had considered before, but I, I like it a lot. Yeah. Well, I can't take credit for it. I, I definitely read that 
in some other reading I've been doing. I think it's in a book by Marie Bridge, maybe mm. where she she's talking to Pullman and it's a um, transcript of their uh, their dialogue. Mm. Um, I can't remember the name of the book, but but yeah. And um, and if you if you listen to Pullman in his podcasts that he's been doing to promote the new book, he talks um, about depression and he talks about the anatomy of melancholy being one of his mm-hmm. favorite books um, and, and stuff like that. So so there's definitely something there. Um, but it's tricky because, you know, he's a living author still. So he he's prone to like say things about his books, which. Mm-hmm. Um, which may or may not be um, that that spot on for for readers who have their own you know intricate mm-hmm. theories they want to work out. Um, and he's he's get, he keeps writing them too, and 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 again, sort of changing, um, going back and and reframing things that have happened in this, in the course of the story, um, giving more details. And, and but um, I feel like there is something about okay. There's something else about um, worlds, and so the descent into hell or the other world of Chittagatsi. Um, in the new, the other new book, the less new book, have you happened to read La Belle Sauvage? The, um, yes. the first mm-hmm. book. Of the, okay, so they go into the uh, the fairyland kind of underworld in that one. Towards the end, they they're pulled by the current and they go down this kind of waterfall, mm-hmm. and they're in this place where there's lights in the trees. And everything's very beautiful on one side of the river, and everything's very uh, misty. And um, mm-hmm. and when they can see over, it's it's dead on that side. So there's this kind of um, fairyland mm-hmm. quality that, that breaks in there. Um, the Secret Commonwealth is an old book about folklore and, and fairies and things. Um, how does that? Again, I I wonder if there's something. Um, is there an epic tradition which is in conflict with a fairy folktale tradition, or are those things in, in more kind of continuity with one another? And, and where does Pullman maybe fit in with that uh, part of the conversation? I really think that's very continuous, actually. Maybe not, I don't know enough Greek and Roman folklore to be able to distinguish religion from fantasy in the classical world. Uh, But certainly by the time we move into the late medieval era, and the biggest example I would give you of the blending of fantasy and religion would be the fairy queen, which like Milton and actually like Tolkien was trying to be the great English epic. Um, It's all about Elizabeth I, but it does. It has, it's, largely allegorical, much like Lewis, but it has these huge hearkenings to the fantasy world. There are dragons and knights, and I can't remember if there's if there's something explicitly called a fairy, but there's certainly witches. Um, and so all of these elements of English fairy tradition sneak into this epic that also has classical roots, that also pulls on... Um, French epics, some of which also are are slightly fantastic in their nature. Uh, the f- many of the French epics are more religious in their 
touches of fantasy. It's more miracles rather than magic, uh, which is a distinction that a lot of Christian writers will make. Uh, But in The Fairy Queen, Spencer doesn't really have any trouble bringing all of those things together. He's very happy for a witch to exist alongside a knight who is representing a Christian virtue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, The King Arthur kind of story gets pulled into that too, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't I haven't read much of the Fairy Queen. I think I read the first book and a bit of the second, um, and that's as far as I got. Uh, I got it's a, a long commitment. Uh, we also did bits of that in our epic class, um, but I didn't match them to Pullman very well. Well, he has been taking little little uh, epigraphs from the Fairy Queen in in his new Book of Dust. Um, so he takes the big epigraph from Milton to mm-hmm. start out the original trilogy as Dark Materials, but he takes um, passages from the Fairy Queen to, uh, I think he puts one at the end of the Belle Sauvage and maybe at the beginning and end of the new Secret Commonwealth. Mm. Got some chunks of, of Spencer there. I can't remember now. if There's definitely one at the end though. Um, but anyhow, he, you know, he wants, it seems to me that Pullman wants you to read these old epic mm-hmm. things to better appreciate where he has taken his uh, his ideas mm-hmm. and maybe to an extent, you know, modeled his, um, his story uh, and his language and, and things like that. Um, he seems to really want to keep that alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious, you know, if, if a certain amount of opposition is also necessary to to keep that epic, you know, vital. Um, if if it if it becomes too kind of um, conventional, does it lose some of its its richness? Um, does there have to be this kind of, you know, taking certain things and rethinking them and reworking them and and putting them back out there? Um, I don't know. I this I, this is a, a question I have. That's a really interesting question. And I don't, I'm not aware of Pullman trying to write either of these series, or if you view it as one long series, as an epic particularly. Um, I might have missed that. Um, But I also would point out that most of the other epics are allegorical in some way. And Allegory is something that in other writers is probably the thing that he doesn't like the most about Lewis, although I don't think he directly says that that's the problem with Lewis. Uh, but I think it, it is part of the problem with Lewis. It's, it's certainly when I was teaching a Lewis and Tolkien class at Signum, I think the second semester that we ever had classes, I was shocked when my students disliked the Chronicles of Narnia that we read because they found them too simple those who had read them for the first time as adults. And it's because that allegory is so clear. It's much less clear in Spencer. The allegory is all throughout, but it leaves you, you would have to spend hours unpacking it for the depth and richness of its allegory. And so I think that's the way, more than anything else for me, that Pullman is deviating Uh, from the traditional epics, Uh, not so much the classical ones, which are not as allegorical, but certainly from the earlier English epics. That's the thing that he leaves behind that jumps out at me 
is the religious foundation, uh, which most of the other English epics have tried to do. In fact, like Milton makes the English epic the story of the Bible, um, or uh, that he's he's moving it in a new direction. So without that foundation in an earlier story, he's able to take the epic elements, but he doesn't confine himself to a narrative that someone else would know. Yeah. So with the fairy queen, we don't really know how it ends because Spencer didn't finish it with Milton. You don't know at what point in the Bible Milton's going to stop at when you begin the Fairy Queen, but you do know how the Bible ends, and you know that Adam and Eve's fall is not the traumatic devastation of the human race because you look around and you're still there. Um, with something like the Book of Dust, we don't really know where it's going to end because he doesn't have something that he's referring to that is a known story. So I think the plot is really the thing that's different that he's adding to the rest of the epic genre, this, this narrative story of Lyra um, and Pantalaimon as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's a, it's an interesting problem, I think for, um, for a reader of Lewis's Narnia books to, um, appreciate, I guess, on on the level of, you know, the child reading these books innocently, so to speak, not being aware that they are allegories of mm -hmm. Christian belief. Um, I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't pick up on that um, consciously, I guess. I really enjoyed them. I still enjoy them as just stories. Um, mm -hmm. I see the problem, I guess, of, uh, <laughs> you know, the... Um, the allegory being too simple or something, but that's only the case once you know that that, that it's there. Um, and I think with Pullman, there's an interesting um, insertion of allegory. Maybe it's not the right word for it, but um, there's an invitation to think allegorically in the alethiometer itself, which is this uh, you know circle mm -hmm. of, of images. And each image has many meanings. I think that's the important part there that like mm -hmm. it has fixed meanings, but there's so many of them and there's so many ways to combine them that it can essentially tell you any kind of story that, that mm -hmm. you might be asking your question about. Right. Um, and so I think in that regard, um, it is a, um, again, I, I guess the word is invitation to allegorical readings without a fixed um, single reading being held up as uh, as as the the right one or something like that. Um, he seems to want readers to interpret the book as having a deeper meaning, uh, something behind the imagery. Mm -hmm. But he's he's wary of putting too fine a point on just what that meaning has to be. And yeah, part of that is that the story is still going on, right? So there's you know, there's certainly uh, targets that he has in mind um, as being bad and things that he wants to hold up as being good. Uh, but just how that story is going to unfold, I guess, remains to be seen to a, to a degree, at least. Yeah. And so the, um, the next thing, the last thing that I wanted to ask about um, is the, the kind of King Arthur elements um mm -hmm. which which come up in spencer and um he doesn't ever finish kind of 
making mm -hmm. that thing cohere. Um, but is there, um, I guess, like the um, the image of the knife, right, as being this kind of uh, tool, this weapon, but also um, an interesting, I guess, contrast to the kind of legendary sword or something like that that the Arthurian knight would be wielding. Um, how, how does that uh, how does that help to distinguish the kinds of things Pullman is doing from the kinds of things that uh, epics and, and romances have been doing before? That's a, also a really interesting question and also something I haven't thought about very much. Um, I mean, what's interesting to me is if you think about the biblical background for having a sword, uh, I'm pretty sure it's the sword of truth um, in the in the new. Oh, yeah. So like the word, right? Well, uh -huh. smite, uh, uh -huh. separate. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure it's the sword of truth. I'd have to look that up. Um, how embarrassing if it's not. Um, but I also have often viewed King Arthur's sword as sort of being the sword of truth. Um, it sits in the stone and it legitimizes him or it comes out of the lake, depending on which version you read, but it, it legitimizes him as the king. It becomes the great thing that says this man truly is the king of England. And then he uses it. He goes forth um, and it allows him victory. It allows him to save and protect and do many other things. And those are, tr those things are largely true of Will as well. Yeah. Um, he, he gets marked, he physically loses half a finger to be the knife bearer. And so even the old knife bearer is like, I can see that you've already been mar marked by it. It's claimed you, uh, much like the, um, the sword, King Arthur's sword becomes King Arthur's sword and that becomes his, his king ship. Um, and Will does protect and save with it. And he also goes forth into other worlds and other places with it and sort of carries it in front of him as a, a saving thing, a trustworthy device that allows him to save and protect the things that he's been given guardianship of. So I think in many ways it's similar, but the truth element of it is also pawned off onto the alethiometer. You need the two of those together to really get to the fullness, should we say, maybe, of the Arthurian sword and certainly the biblical sword. Um, so it's, it's almost like the two objects together. Obviously, the subtle knife is more important to the plot of this book. The alethiometer comes out, but not very often. Um, and so while it's more integral to the plot, I think you need the two devices together to get that single object mentality. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The the component of kind of a good authority mm -hmm. to, to combat the um, the evil authority that is in the, uh, the church, the institution of the church in, in Lyra's world, mm -hmm. um, like speaks through the alethiometer, essentially. And... Uh, uh, yeah, that's that's cool. Um, I I feel like I will um, be on the lookout for more courses that you are offering over at Signum. I've I've taken some of the philology classes and really liked them, and I'm I'm taking right now uh, a class that deals with Lewis quite a bit um, mm. in in his Four Loves. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll try to try to get involved in more of these epics, which I 
like Spencer, especially, I really, really have to read. Um, oh, Spencer's magical, but you really need a, a good afternoon to set aside when you can read him without distraction. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's not a good one for the end of the day when your brain is tired. Wow. Yeah. Well, so I'll, I'll look forward to your guidance on that. Um, Faith Ecker, thanks for joining me. Uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right. Take it easy. You too.